Well, once again, good morning, Trinity Church. It is good, good to be with you. I don't know of any place that I would rather be to celebrate Christmas than with God's people. This morning, we are going to be taking our Christmas message from Colossians chapter number one. Colossians chapter number one, if you will turn there in your copy of the scriptures. Colossians chapter one. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, find somebody close to you that does. And if you still don't have a copy of the scriptures anywhere near you, come see me afterwards. I want to make sure you get a copy of the scriptures so you can bring it with you to church. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read verse 15 through 20. I want to answer the question today, kind of. Should Christians celebrate Christmas? Should Christians celebrate Christmas? And uh, for some of you, that might sound like a, a crazy question, but indeed there are a lot of Christians who don't think you should celebrate Christmas for various reasons. And I'm not going to answer all of those reasons, but it's an interesting question, isn't it? Should Christians celebrate Christmas? It is true that our Christmas holiday has been largely taken over by secularists. Our Christmas holiday has largely diminished the person of Christ. And it is for this reason, the diminishing of Christ, the lessening of the person of Christ, that the Apostle Paul writes the book of Colossians to the church at Colossae. He had heard that there were heretics, false teachers, who were teaching there in the church at Colossae, and they were not erasing Jesus, they were not erasing the person of Christ, but they were lessening him, they were diminishing him. So I thought this would be a fitting text for us to consider this morning for Christmas as we are in a culture that wants to relegate Jesus to a sub-theme of the holiday season. Today we turn our attention to Colossians 1, 15-20, which is a song. It's a hymn. Anytime Scripture wants to say something important, Oftentimes, I should say, when Scripture wants to say something important, Scripture gives a hymn or a song or a poem. This is not accidental. The songs that we sing, these are the things that we remember. Did you know that one of these days when you approach the deathbed, you will not remember, you know this very well, you will not remember any sermon that I've preached or any sermon that you've heard. What will you remember as you approach death's door? As a Christian, you will remember the songs. How often I've heard of people with their dying loved ones singing songs with them, songs that they cherish. Why? Because these songs reinforce and remind us of the theology that we hold dear, the truths that we hold dear. Our singing is important. Scripture 
wants us to see the truth of who Jesus is by this hymn, this song found in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. If you want to know who Jesus is, if you want to know what it is that we are to believe about him, Paul tells us with resounding clarity here in this hymn. I'm going to ask you, out of respect for God's word, and out of respect for our Lord, if you would stand with me as I read verse 15 through 20 of Colossians 1. Colossians 1, verse 15. Who is Jesus? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This hymn has three parts, two verses and a bridge or a chorus in the middle. Verse 15 and 16, if you look at it there, that's why I wanted you to have a copy of the scriptures. Everything we're going to say this morning is right from the scriptures, okay? It's not my opinion or something I'm making up. It's right there in the Bible. Verse 15 and 16 is the first verse of this hymn. Verse 17 and 18 is the bridge or the chorus, if you will of this hymn, of this song. And then verse 18 through 20, the last part of verse 18 through verse 20, contains the second verse. What I'm going to do this morning is just walk through this song. And I want you to see who Jesus, the beloved Son, is. The first verse begins in verse 15 with a couplet. Here's what it says. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, if you've been with us for the last several weeks, we've been in the book of Genesis, you should hear, you should definitely hear some allusion to Genesis 1. Remember in Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. You should hear that here in Colossians. Adam was made as image of God. He was given to represent God on the earth. He was the sun king that was to reign in creation and represent God. However, Adam was made. He was created. The beloved son, whom this hymn is referring to, the beloved son was not made. Sometimes we think, when we think of the Bible, we think of this terminology, image of God, sometimes we think, and, and it does mean representation, it does have a reference to the Son King who represents God, but sometimes when we think of this term, we think that Adam is the pattern, 
And that Jesus comes after to fulfill this pattern that Adam establishes. What Colossians 1 tells us is that Adam is not the first one who is image of God. The beloved son is. Adam's role was simply to introduce the truth, the concept of who the son, the beloved son truly is. He was preparing the way for the real deal. The true image of the invisible God. And in this way you also see that the son of God, the beloved son is unique. While Adam is the image bearer, and as man, you and I, we are made to be image bearers, and this tells us truth about God, this tells us who God is, the beloved son is the image of the invisible God. God cannot be seen. We see this. We saw this today in our liturgy, didn't we? No one can see God, but the true God the one who exists with the Father, he has made the invisible God known. In other words, if you want to see God, if you want to see the glory and radiance of God, you see God in the beloved Son. When you look in the face of the Son, you are looking into the face of God. But then the second part of this opening couplet, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now there are many who would like to pervert this verse and twist it to say that Jesus was part of creation. Now, if you look at the context of this verse, that is, that is obviously not, what, not what's being said. Many would like to pervert it to say that Jesus is part of creation, but they have to ignore the immediate context as well as the context of the rest of the scriptures. The term firstborn is not talking about being born. Stay with me here. The term firstborn speaks of a position that is held. The beloved son has the position of the firstborn. Israel is called the firstborn in Exodus 4 because Israel is the firstborn of all nations. The nation which ranks first. David in Psalm 89 is called the firstborn because God will make him the highest of the kings of the earth. So you see that firstborn is a title of rank and position. The firstborn has the highest rank. He is of highest importance. He is in the first place. There is nothing and no one more important than the firstborn. And look at what it says. The beloved son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. The beloved son holds the place of honor and supremacy. He is the authority of all creation. Maybe you ask on what basis? 
On what basis does the beloved son hold this position? You know, we think of first place. When we think of first place, we think of a blue ribbon, don't we? We have a podium set up with first place, second place, third place. First place is the one, the one who gets the honor, the one who gets the praise. They're the ones who jump the highest or run the fastest or play the best. They are given that place because they have competed and won. Why does Jesus get the first place? The hymn goes on to tell us, spells out clearly for us with three prepositional statements. Look at the first one there in verse number 16. For by him all things were created. That word by, that's a good translation. I prefer the translation in. That's what the preposition is. In, for in him all things were created. He is the source of all creation. The Son of God created all things. We saw that in our liturgy again today. He is the one of the highest rank and authority because he is the source of all creation. And the hymn specifies what is meant by all. What does it say? All things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. There's an inversion there to drive home the point for specification. The realm of heaven includes all that is invisible, the unseen realm. The earth is all that is visible. I was with my children this last week. We had some special friends come over one of the mornings this week and read the first part of Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol. You guys like that story, Christmas Carol? I love that story. It's beautiful. Do you remember when Marley, remember who Marley is? Marley is the partner, the dead partner of Ebenezer Scrooge. And Marley visits Ebenezer Scrooge on a cold night. And Ebenezer Scrooge is allowed to see, briefly, he's allowed to see the invisible world. He's allowed to see a reality that he did not see before. There is an invisible wor wor world, and Marley tells him something that chills him even further. It's a cold night, but he even gets colder by what Marley tells him. Marley tells him that often he will come and sit next to Scrooge at his counting house and watch him. Unseen, unbeknownst to Ebenezer Scrooge. That reality of an invisible world. Did you know there's an invisible world today? And that world is just as real as this one. See, you and I, because we're people of flesh, we think that all that exists is what we can see and touch and feel. That the material world is all there is. No, there's, there's an invisible world that is part of creation in fact, that realm is even more real than this one because from that perspective, they can see all that really is. You and I, we only see part of the reality. So this, is, this is the big thing we need. We need to, to realize on a regular basis what is truly real. 
And what is real goes far beyond what we can see and touch. The point of the passage here is that all of it, visible and invisible, was created in him. All was made in him. To be sure, there are powers and authorities that exist in both the spiritual realm and the earthly realm, but he created them all. We don't have to go through the list and explain what thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities are. Why? Because the point is, he made them all. He is above them because he created them. So there is no podium, just in case you are wondering. There's no first place and second place and third place. There's only one place. And he holds it. First place. He is the first and only real authority. His rule, his dominion, his throne is supreme. He alone is left standing. And every single king and ruler and power that exists would be wise to bow the knee to him. So what scripture tells the kings of the earth, be wise. And I, I extend that same admonition to you. You, know, you want to know what real wisdom is this morning? Real wisdom starts by understanding who the real authority is. Have you bowed the knee to Jesus? Have you bowed the knee to the Son? Be wise. Bow the knee to Him. All things were created in Him. All things were created through Him at the end of verse 16. All three things were created through Him. By means of Him, the world was created. He is the source of creation. He is the means of creation. And it says that all things were created for Him. All of creation is created in Him, through Him, and for Him. It is all aimed and purposed to Him. All things were created in Him, through Him, and for Him. And this is why... He is the firstborn of all creation. Verse 17 and 18. We finished the first verse, but verse 17 and 18 is the bridge. Verse 17, especially, summarizes the first verse. The second part will introduce the second stanza or the second verse, but the first line here summarizes the first verse. If we needed further clarification, here is our summary, verse 17. Look at it. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. He is first in time and in rank. He is the preexistent one. He is before all creation. And as we just heard, He is the source, the means, the goal of all creation. We hear here kind of a, a complete summary. Listen to it. All of creation is held together by Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. 
What holds together our lives? What holds together all matter? What holds together all space? What holds together everything? The beloved son holds together everything. Do you know who you're celebrating this Christmas? Do you know who you're celebrating this Christmas? You are celebrating the pre-existent image of God, the one who is the image of the invisible God, the source, the means, and the goal of all creation, the one who holds all things, all of creation together. But we're only halfway through the song. That was the first verse in the summary statement. Let's look at the second half. The second part of the bridge introduces the theme of the second stanza. Here it is. He, that is the beloved son, he is the head of the body, the church. Take it by itself. This is a very straightforward statement. Scripture refers to the church as the body. It has a lot of descriptions of the church. One of the most familiar is that the church is a body. And it calls the beloved son the head. The beloved son is the authority, the leader of the church. The one in the top place. But we just saw that he is in the first place as regards to all of creation. Doesn't this seem a little redundant? He is in the first place as regards to all of creation, but here, here it tells us something unique. It says that he and his authority is emphasized uniquely for a particular group of people. So while he is the authority of all creation, he is uniquely the leader and authority of a particular people. And this particular people is the church. He rules all things, and yet he rules the church uniquely. What's the significance of this statement? Well, let's continue through the hymn. Again, this stanza, the second verse, begins with a couplet, just like the first one did. It's parallel. Look at what it says. Halfway through verse 18 there, look at it. It says, he is the beginning. So at the very beginning, it said he is the image of the invisible God. Now it says he is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. The beloved son is said to be the beginning. Now we've already seen that he is before all things. He ex exists before all things and has created all things. And by right then is the authority of creation. But here the writer is saying something different. Look at it closely. The writer is saying something different here. The son is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that title again, firstborn. The firstborn from the dead. What does that mean? The beloved son is the beginning, the first and by right, the one of highest rank and position, not just, this is what it's saying, not just of all creation, but he is the first, the one of highest rank and position of the new creation. He is the beginning of the new creation. 
the beloved son, has defeated death and rose from the dead to begin the new creation. Why? The hymn goes on to tell you why. Listen, listen to this, listen to this. I know there's a lot of commotion and noise and stuff going around people, but it's just people. Like there's, there's children. You want to come to my house and see noise? Pay attention. Dial in, tune in, be disciplined. Listen. The reason why he does this, why does he rise from the dead? Why does he come and experience life as a man and take sin upon himself and die on the cross and is buried and then rises again? Why does he do that? It tells us at the end of verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent. In everything. Up to this point in the hymn, all things is referring to all creation. Now, here, everything refers to both the old creation and the new creation. That in everything, both in everything that has been made and everything that's being made new, that he might be preeminent in all of it. That's what it's saying. He deserves and holds the right of preeminence over and above all in both creations, the old and the new. No place exists in all of creation, both old and new, where Christ, the beloved Son, is not preeminent. He holds the rightful first place. Now, in the first verse, we see that there were three prepositions, right? In and through and for or to him. We see those same three prepositions here in the second verse. Again, a parallel with the first Let's look at these very quickly. That in all things he might be preeminent because, verse 19, for, because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I want to think about this just for a moment. Scripture tells us that God cannot be contained in the temples that men make by their own hands. God cannot be contained in temples. God cannot be contained in all of his creation. All of his creation is not enough to contain him. But in the beloved son, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. All that God is, is found in the son. This line here, this line here wipes away the sentimentality of the manger scene. You know what sentimentality is? Sentimentality is what we're experiencing during this Christmas season. Right? And, and sentimentality by itself is not a bad thing, but sentimentality often is used to obscure or hide something that is underdone or malformed. It's like icing on an unbaked cake or poorly executed dish, you put what? You put a bunch of hot sauce on it. 
That's what sentimentality is. And see, with that sweet and syrupy sentimentality, we, get a, we have a lot of error that slips in with that sentimentality, don't we? How many people? I was listening the other night. We were listening to Christmas as we were around delivering things to people's houses and all that. We were listening to Christmas carols. And beautiful. I love, I love listening to some of the classic, you know, Bing Crosby and the Carpenters and all those different things. How many of those people sung about Jesus in a manger and yet did not know him? They're singing songs because that's what people want to hear. Sentimental, well-meaning, empty. It's important for us to see the manger to see the lowliness and the meekness and the mild Lord Jesus laying his head down in that manger. It's important for us to see that. But that scene is only important when you truly grasp what is happening. The infant lying in a manger was the fullness of God incarnate. The fullness of God As Philip, the disciple, asks towards the end of Jesus' ministry, you remember the disciples are there with Jesus in the upper room, and Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus answers him by saying this, Have you been so long with me and you still don't know who I am? Do you not know and recognize who I am? You've been with me all this time and you still don't know who I am? He says, I and the Father are one. What's he saying to the disciples? To look at me is to look at God. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him, to reconcile to himself all things. You have both the second and third prepositional statements there. That word to himself is the same word that's translated for above in the first verse. In him, God's fullness was pleased to dwell, that through him, God reconciles to himself all things. 2 Corinthians 5 states this clearly. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Reconciliation, this truth, this concept of reconciliation. Reconciliation implies that a relationship has been estranged. To reconcile means that at one point you were together. To be reconciled requires that you have two parties who were at once together but are now separated and this is what we find in all that has been created. The creation has been made in and through and to the beloved Son. But this creation is in rebellion against His rule. Creation has been separated from her Creator because of sin. You and I have been separated from God because of sin. You and I need to be reconciled to God. That reconcil reconciliation has been accomplished. That reconciliation has been made. 
This is what the last line of the song says, making peace by the blood of his cross. What has he made peace with? All things, whether on earth or in heaven. By his cross, he has made reconciliation. He has made peace with all things. You and I, who have come to the firstborn, this is important. You and I, who have come to the firstborn to be reconciled to God, are now his people. We have been reconciled with God. We have peace with God. We are the people of his new creation. We are, Hebrews 12 calls us, the assembly of the firstborn. Hebrews 12 calls us. That's who we are. The people, the assembly of the firstborn. Understand who he is. If you have not come to him by faith, if you have not seen who he is, if you think that your diminished Jesus will be enough for you. This also ran Jesus who you have conceived of in your mind. If you think this Jesus will be enough for you, you are mistaken. You must come to him by faith, seeing that he is the beloved son of God, the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn from the dead. He himself has gone to death for sinners. He himself has been raised from the dead. He himself has been declared Lord and Christ, the firstborn of all things. He himself alone is the way of salvation. If you have not come to him acknowledging truly who he is, you are not saved. And you are headed towards judgment. Today, would you bow the knee to the firstborn? Understand who he is. He has done everything he has done. Why? Again, so that he might be preeminent in all things. I was, I was out delivering the other day, as I said, and I went to Jeremy Kuhn's house. Jeremy Kuhn's our other elder, one of our other elders here at Trinity Church. And he has, and I love it, he has it on the door. Jesus is the reason for the season. You ever seen that? Jesus is the reason for the season. That's a great statement. It's a true statement as far as it goes. But it doesn't go far enough. Jesus is the reason for the season. Yes, that's true. Because Jesus is the reason for everything. Jesus did not come so that we could give him a day a year or two days a year. He did not come so that we would give him a month a year. He did not come so that we would set up a nativity scene in our house once a year to let everybody know we're a Christian home here. No, he came that he might be preeminent in all things, both old creation and new. He, he is in first place, preeminent above all, and he deserves your life. That's what your life is actually about. It's about him. All things were made by him. All things were made through him. All things were made for him. And you're part of all things, and so am I. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? So that he might be preeminent in all things. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that through him, he might reconcile to himself all things, in heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Why? So that his people can acknowledge his unique and particular authority. He is the Lord, the God of creation, both old and new. He is to be worshiped with every part of our life. This means that all of creation, visible or invisible, in heaven or in earth, that does not acknowledge him in his rightful place is living in disobedience. All who would seek to celebrate in a way to erase or diminish the preeminent son are in sin. That sounds very harsh for a Christmas service, doesn't it? But it's true. This also means that there is one place, there is one place on earth where his preeminence should be expressed most clearly. Where is that place? In the midst of his church. In the midst of his people. In the midst of his assembly. His authority, his place, his preeminence should be made clearest here in the midst of his people. So, should a Christian celebrate the coming of the firstborn? An emphatic yes. Now you may say, well those secularists, they've perverted it. That is all the reason more why we should celebrate it rightly, is it not? Well, it has pagan beginnings. Everything is owned by him. It's all his. It's all for him. If you don't, in your conscience, feel clear to celebrate on the 25th of December, then celebrate on the 26th of December. But celebrate. You better give gifts. You better eat food. You, you, better, you better celebrate. Why? Because we are the people of the firstborn. And in him and through him and to him are all things. He is our Lord. And the world needs to see who he is clearly. We need to remember who he is clearly. And Christmas is such an opportunity to make him known. Father, we thank you for this privilege that you've given us. You've made us your people. You've made us your inheritance. You've birthed us anew. And we deserve none of it. I pray that we would celebrate your grace and your gift, your mercy towards us, that we would celebrate in a way that would make it clear whose we are and who you are as the firstborn of all creation, both old and new.